Hello everyone, today we have a very interesting episode with Ben from New Zealand. Uh, I started talking to Ben on Twitter and we were exchanging a few messages and then I checked out his blog and wow, it was very fascinating. He is very into an intergenerational wealth, which basically means knowing how to manage your wealth to then pass it on to your children effectively without spoiling them, of course. And I thought this was a very interesting topic for people who are into financial independence. What do I do with this money once I reach financial independence and how do I pass it on to my children? So Ben has a lot of theories on how to do this and the different capital that you need to pass on to your descendants. Very, very interesting. So stay tuned and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Financial Independence Europe podcast, where we interview people from all 44 European countries, all of them, about optimizing your life, geo-arbitrage and making the most of your money. This was your hosts, Alvar, Erminta and Matthias. Yeah, hello. Welcome to a new episode of the Financial Independence Europe podcast. And today we have a guest. Uh, the name is Ben. And first of all, I would like to introduce my co-host, Araminta. Hey, hey, everyone. Hi, Araminta. Welcome. And we, our guest with us today is Ben. Hello. Hi. So first of all, uh, let's dive into the topic. But to get an, an idea about our guest today, I would like to have Ben to give us a little introduction about his life and who he is and what he's doing, where is he living, maybe how old he is and so on. So Ben, can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, thank both of you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. It's, um, it's my first interview, so I'd be lying if I said I wasn't uh, at least a little bit nervous. But um, yeah, my name's Ben. I live in Auckland, New Zealand. I prefer to keep my last name a bit of a mystery. I managed to become financially independent by the time I was 26, but I decided that um, being retired, I suppose, wasn't really for me. So I decided to carry on um, through my working life. Nice. So today we're going to dive deep into something that you really enjoy talking about, I think, from, from what I see from your blog, uh, which is intergenerational wealth, basically being, you know, how to pass on money from one generation to another. So it'd be really interesting if you could tell us a bit, what is intergenerational wealth and why is it important? Uh, well, intergenerational wealth is um, is something that is actually beyond the the financial side of it. I should should start by saying, but there's there's something kind of like a um, an adage that exists throughout all cultures. And the most commonly known one is shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. But I actually think uh, the Scottish say it best, and what they say is uh, the father builds, his son buys, his son sells, and his son begs. And basically what all of these adages are, are getting at is that um, typically wealth is lost within three generations. And this is usually because the culture that surrounds a family um, isn't strong enough to appreciate and nurture the wealth that they accumulate. And usually by the time you've reached three generations of separation, the grandchildren at this point are far enough removed to not appreciate the wealth that their grandparents have built. And um, they typically sell it or liquidate it to fuel their rather unsustainable lifestyles. I also found that um, families typically drift apart, just as like a natural thing that happens with families. But really the idea behind intergenerational wealth is that a family is able to outlast the individuals that are within it. And if a family can capture and nurture wealth, then it serves as a tool to improve the lives, but not the lifestyles of the individuals within a family. Nice. So really you're 
you're really thinking of the big picture here because it's not just me that wants to reach financial independence or wants to be financially stable, but it's my entire family and my descendants and the descendants of my descendants. And it goes on and on. That's really like next level picture thinking. How, how did you even start thinking this way or or what made you, did you have like an aha moment that was like, oh, actually I need to start thinking about my 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 children or or their descendants? Um, I suppose it really started, I guess the best place to start would be when my wife became pregnant. I'm the kind of guy who likes to kind of go in and, and be as prepared as I possibly can. So what I did is I started reading about brain development for whatever reason. I thought that was a good place to start when it comes to parenting. But in my research, I slowly realized that um, culture really plays a large part in how your um, family develops and, um, and how your children develop, rather. So doing my research about family culture, I came across families like, and these are extreme cases, but like the Rockefellers and the Waltons, who are the founders of Walmart, and the Rothschilds. And that sort of got me thinking about what happens after us, you know, what happens after we've um, finished our financial journeys or after we've completed our lives, I suppose. And it made me sort of think that the life that um, that we create or, or our children, sort of they carry on and their children carry on and so on. And if we can capture wealth in our lifetimes, then what's to stop us from perpetuating that throughout the generations? And I became financially independent, like I said, at um, the age of 26. And I sort of thought if I can do as accumulate as much as I have in the eight years that I was working for, then you know, how much more can I build if I just keep going basically. And um, that was sort of like the aha moment for me is trying to create like a, a permanent, I guess, foundation for my family to propel themselves forward from. What I find interesting is that really, it really came from within this moment of realization. It wasn't your parents who, who taught you this. Was it, was it maybe your, your family? Did they cultivate this kind of mentality uh, or was it just you? I suppose in a way my dad did, not really in the in the financial wealth side of it, but more in like in form of intellectual capital. He took me on as an apprentice um, after I left school and um, he sort of instilled a really strong work ethic in me as well and taught me a little bit about personal finance, which helped me become a really good saver. But with all of these sort of things distilled into me, it let me encourage me to work really hard um, all throughout my youth and let me, through my saving and eventual investing, I actually became was able to become uh, financially independent at quite a young, what I consider to be quite a young age. But uh, so if you're looking at it from that perspective, then then yes, I suppose. And oh, that, and I I lived in my family home for until I was 25 actually. Um, so I also think of that as kind of like a um, a wealth transfer in a way, because your parents. I mean, I paid board and everything. It wasn't a free ride, but it, it allowed me to work more and freed up my time a little bit, so I could concentrate on developing myself and my investing ability. Uh, and plus it let me save a lot as well because you know, paying board to my parents was significantly less than it would be of renting a place of my own. So from that perspective, yes, I suppose it did start with my parents. But at the same time, I still like to think of myself and my wife as the founding father and founding mother of our legacy family. In the sense that we're going to be the ones that create the culture that can perpetuate itself down through multiple generations. I think if you're going to start down the path of building generational wealth, it really starts with you. You can't really go back a generation and try and alter a culture that's already been established. And the same with going kind of sideways to your siblings as well. It's kind of hard to to interject and, and change the, the dynamic of an already, exist, already established family. So really, it starts with you and your descendants. 
Okay, so now we got a little bit into the mindset and how you, for yourself, um, start the journey um, for the intergeneral wealth of your own family. So right now I would like to dig a little bit deeper into what things um, families need to build intergeneral wealth. So what would you recommend, which steps or which components would you see for other people or which components do you see or would describe to let someone else like me, for example, to start the journey or what components are there? Like, is it a, a tradition mindset? Do you need a nice family logo? Are there certain skills you would like to teach to your children? That's a, that's a pretty broad question, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it really yeah. starts with um, uh, with the culture that you're that you want to establish in your family, and sort of going into more of an intentional way of living um, with this kind of philosophy in mind. And obviously, along with this culture, tradition plays a large part. But there's also the morals and ethics that you want to establish in your family as well. If you're going to be building any substantial amount of capital, which I'll get into a little bit later, but um, if you're going to be building any capital in terms of finances, it's not really going to work too well if you just hand it over. I think the I think the most common comparison you can make is, it's probably not the best comparison, but the best comparison that I can think of in this moment is like the lottery. Typically winning the lottery is more like a, like a curse than it is a blessing. People that don't know how to manage wealth and any substantial amount tend to fight and get into disagreements and tend to spend it quite frivolously and they wind up worse than when they started. So the best place to start would be with um, with your children and becoming the best parent you can be and putting extra effort into into raising what I like to call calibrated kids. And uh, what I mean by calibrated kids are, are children that are raised in a specific way that they have the opportunity to become the best that they can possibly be. And um, this means implementing things like um, the best of uh, modern child psychology and, and nutrition, you know, not feeding them sugary snacks and encouraging um, intelligence and curiosity in your children. Um, I find curiosity is something that is is quite frequently lost in a lot of adults. And another thing that I'd say is is really crucial is building a a kind of like a sanctuary. So it's like your family home becomes more of a family compound. And it's a place of, of refuge and freedom and belonging where family members are always welcome. It's also building a sense of togetherness and cooperation instead of competition in your family. So the best example I can think of this is if you have two children that are aiming to become the best swimmers, you want them to help each other out so they can become better swimmers together rather than compete and hold each other back, if that makes sense. Uh, that makes perfect sense. So you, um, you first of all mentioned a few things that are not so important, like building capital. You also had the example of the lottery that that is not enough to create intergeneral wealth. And the best way to start is just start with your own children. So, for example, go to courses, read some books about parenting, um, do it the, not the green way, but uh, don't consume too much sugar snacks and plastic toys, maybe. And just try to be a meaningful parent and not do not outsource the whole parental stuff to the kindergarten or to au pairs or to, to other people because that's a really important task to do. And it, it's different maybe also if you just outsource it or if you hand your children to other people. Just the most important thing is to, to teach them, to um, care about them and to I give them the feeling that they belong to the family and that they are secure. 
Exactly, yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, talking about the outsourcing parenting. I find that when people, when both parents focus too much on wealth building, they tend to outsource their parenting, which is it's mm. kind of hard. It sounds really cold when you when you word it like that and say outsource parenting, because it's how can you outsource being a parent for your children? You know what I mean? So I find it at best when you have um, a kind of a, a more, for lack of a better term, traditionalist kind of culture where you have one stay-at-home parent and one parent that's more focused on the wealth building and, and providing side of it. And that in turn creates more of a, a dynamic where you're able to build the sanctuary and you're able to have the stay-at-home parent be more of the CEO or chief, I like to call them chief emotional officer, where they're more focused on building a home and making sure that, um, you know, working on personal development and, and working on the development of the, the family aspect and, and more of that side of things. I just find that pretty much in all in all um, intergenerational wealth families that this is just the the model that has tended to work over the years. And so you say you can't um, these these very important tasks like um, the family emotions or the social connection to other people um, to building a hub where people or friends like to come to and, and network and building a comfortable space um, where people like to go to. That is a task or that are tasks that you would um, consider to be done by one person and not being like in, in modern society, maybe shared across two people. Yeah, I think so. I think it's better if you have uh, more of a delegated sort of, um, probably not the best term, but more, more delegation. Um, so one person can focus on specializing more and in terms of building the sanctuary and one person can focus more on, on building the finances. And that's not to say that there's not going to be crossover from time to time. I mean, it's going to be a bit bit of a sad house if, if one of the parents is always locked away working and the other one's you know, always with the with the family and you never see one of the parents. It's not really what I'm getting at. Hmm. Um, it's more that you're, um, you have one person who's steering, steering one one part of the ship, I suppose, and the other person's sort of steering another part of the ship, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So you say specialize, you specialize on your part and you are in charge of that and you, you might delegate to the other parent some tasks like organizing a birthday party or stuff like that. You can yeah, delegate, yeah, exactly. but the one is in charge for family and emotions, social, and the other one is for, for the wealth topics. So Matthias, have you ever talked about dividend stocks, Estonian companies, or how frugal you are on the first dates, or with one of your colleagues? I tried it once with a colleague and he said, dividend what? Aha, uh -huh. do you know, I actually have a retreat that covers this all. Oh, tell me more. So this retreat, it's all about workshops and talks together with like-minded folks who share their knowledge with you. Oh, sounds awesome. Do you have also barbecue, yoga and surfing, and are we able to have a glass of wine? Actually, yes, we do. That's all together combined in Portugal. But the most important question of the day, when is this actually? Will it be in 2019? It's actually in 2019, at 24th of May to 27th at Agave in Portugal, near the ocean. And we have also a pool for people who don't like nature. That actually sounds pretty good. And then where do I find this? Head over to financial-independence.eu slash retreat. That's R-E-T-R-E-A-T. -E so... Yeah, winter's shit. Looking forward to it.
So you talked to us, to us a bit about how to, how to build intergenerational wealth, but on your blog, you talk about three different strategies. Could you maybe walk us through those three like strategies and tell us what is your favorite one and, and why? Are these three strategies are more for the financial capital that you're building inside your family? These strategies are the great accumulator, the collective and the family business. So just to quickly break down each one, the great accumulator is a method where you have one individual focusing on building a vast amount of wealth, which they then forego to put in the middle. So they take their individual wealth, which is something that is separate to the family wealth, and they pretty much forego that and they put it in the middle for the family to manage. So imagine if you built a um, big shipping company, for example, and then you either sold that or, or put the business in, under the management of the family or the stocks in the business under the management of the family. And, and that would be an example of the great accumulator method. The collective is something that's more accessible, I suppose, to a lot of people. And that is where the members of the family make a specific amount of contributions to a collective fund which is then leveraged to buy assets or, or to achieve goals that wouldn't be as accessible to an individual. So an example of this might be buying a, an apartment building, whereas every individual member might only be able to buy an apartment. If they were all to pull their resources together, they'd be able to buy an apartment building and achieve much higher returns. And whether they want to pay a distribution or not out of this is, is arguable. Uh, personally, I don't think family wealth should be used to pay distributions because that is where you sort of get into the sticky sticky part of it but um, i'll go into that a little bit later i think and the, the third method is the family business and the title of this isn't is it can be a little bit misleading um, it doesn't necessarily mean a business that the family manages though it can like a family business might be a chain of laundromats for example but you've got to think of it from the perspective of the skill that it takes to run the laundromat that is where the family business um, wealth generation method actually comes from. So if you go and look back at um, uh, historically how wealth was transferred, it was through the intellectual capital of the family. So a blacksmith would teach his son how to be a blacksmith, and then his son was able to generate wealth. So in a more modern sense, uh, a parent who knows how to, or who is an electrician like my father, taught me how to be an electrician, and that was a transfer of intellectual capital which in turn let me build the wealth that I have today. And you, you keep talking about capital, um, and we so there's financial, there's intellectual, but what other kind of, of capital can you give to your children and to their descendants in order for them to build wealth, to, to, to carry on managing this wealth? So there are four types of capital in order of importance. Um, they are human, intellectual, social, and financial. Uh, human capital is the members itself. Um, there is no family without its members, the human capital. And um, it also accounts for their personal capabilities and the, um, the overall emotional resilience and the culture of the family. Um, so it's like their togetherness and, and the actual members of the family make up the human capital. Second, there's intellectual capital, which is the collective knowledge and skills of the family members and what they have access to as well. Um, it can also be more um, intricate kind of knowledge. So think about like grandma's secret cookie recipe. That would be an example of an asset that would fit into the intellectual capital category. Next, there's social capital, which is the greater network of the family and the family's reputation. And, and it's also the, the ability to leverage that network as well. So for example, um, you might have an uncle who is the purchasing manager for a warehouse 
and you have another member of the family who has a, a small importing business, well, the, the uncle would be able to purchase off this other family member and stock these products in the warehouse. So that would be an example of leveraging social capital. And last and least important, there's the financial capital. And this is the funds in the middle, um, the tool that's used to improve the lives, not the lifestyle of the family members. Yeah, there are two things that I really like about what you're telling me. Uh, the first one is that really the financial part is at the bottom. It, it's important, but it's not a priority because, as you said before, there's no point in giving your children money if they don't know how to use it. I mean, this is, yeah, basic financial education. So that's very important. And I had never really thought about my family as kind of something that could give me capital. I mean, I just took it for granted that my parents would educate me on certain things and not on other things, because I feel sometimes we maybe rely too much on the education system or, or we rely too much maybe on ourselves. And what you're saying here really is that actually you could use your immediate family to, to help you out in life. And I think that, first of all, that's fascinating. <laughs> I never thought of that before. And second of all, how, how can we implement that? How can I give intellectual, social and human? That's human it. capital. So how can capital. I give my children human, social, intellectual capital? Financial, I guess, is something that we already talked about. But these first three, do you, is there anything specific that I can try or, or what, do you, what would you recommend? Well, like I keep coming back to, human capital is really about the culture that you're able to build. So this is living a very in a very intentional kind of way and implementing traditions and sort of um, mindsets and morals and ethics into your children. And it takes a, a lot of study and a lot of self-control to, to implement this. It can be very difficult to, to break a habit of, say, using the, uh, a phone at the dinner table, which is I personally believe is a terrible habit for a lot of people. Totally, I hate it. Dinners or, or meals in general should be a time to get together for family members and, and discuss the day and discuss their plans and, and what they're doing. So implementing traditions like this is a great way to build human capital. And the next uh, building intellectual capital is more about what skills and knowledge you're able to share with your children. So, for example, the both of you being uh, very experienced in personal finance would be a perfect example of transferring intellectual capital to your children. Uh, if you were to put a, a person into the world with, like most people, um, have very little experience with personal finance, um, this is because typically parents are relying on the school system, like you said, to to educate their children and unfortunately or fortunately depending how you look at it um, the the school system doesn't educate people on personal finance so it's it's a way that kind of breaks the poverty cycle i guess and for lack of a better term um but you're able to uh, transfer this intellectual capital to your children and teach them how to manage their own money and grow it and nurture it um, and it's something that's lost on a lot of people out there so that would be an example of how to how to transfer intellectual capital but you got to remember, it's also like the stories that you tell your children and it's like the, the secrets that your family has. And not dark secrets, I mean dark secrets, but like the, the, the secret recipe that their grandma has for her cookies. You know, it would be lost to the ages if she weren't to you know, hand it down to, to her children or her grandchildren. And it's the same as if you had a family business, for example, and um, you have an uncle who knows how to wire up a set of valves a particular way in the laundromat to save water. And, and that would give your family an edge in their business, well, there's no point in letting that out to the greater public because that's what gives your family business its edge. So that would be another example of intellectual capital. And social capital is more about building a network. So think about if your friends had children, then then introducing those two groups of children together would be an example of, of social capital and transferring that. 
but you can also look at it like um, your friends and, and stuff like that as well. Like uh, my wife and I actually met through our mothers, funnily enough. So that would be an example of how, how social capital kind of came into play there and actually led to, led to us um, eventually, you know, being together. I just have one more, more quick question on this topic, which is how would you avoid a situation where the children or the child feels privileged or, or spoilt or, cause I, I've seen this a lot with people surrounding me. They have uh, grown up in this very uh, full of intellectual capital, social capital, these networks, and even financially. And, and you, they have this kind of uh, snobbiness or, or, or they're spoiled. How would you avoid that kind of situation? Or is that something you can't avoid? I don't know. It's definitely something you can avoid. I think a lot of the time it's because this this wealth that's been built hasn't been built in an intentional way. And I'm not saying that the financial capital hasn't been built in an intentional way, but there's a reason I put that on the bottom of the list of the four types of capital. It's because the other four types of capital are far more important. And you've also got to remember that um, family wealth isn't really like individual wealth. Every individual in the family still has to build individual wealth to support themselves. You don't typically pay distributions out of financial capital. An example of using financial capital would be to buy a house for a family member, but that family member can't live in that house for free. They still have to rent it off the family. It might be at a discounted rate, but there are no free rides. You still have to rent it out to the family members. If you make times too easy, you typically get a, a weakened kind of uh, group of people, I, I tend to find, or at least according to history. And if you give somebody something, they tend not to appreciate it as much as if they were to work for it as well. So again, it comes back to culture as well and, um, and keeping those rules consistent uh, for all the members of your family. Okay, and we learned about what teach um, children or inherit uh, knowledge um, to the children. It would be a pity if um, the children just retire early. Um, so you, you tweaked um, the word fire, which um, is related to our community and also um, is a basic topic of our podcast. You tweaked it a little bit and you said um, fine, so F-I-N-E. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you're not a huge fan of retire early. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, well, it's fine, uh, fine, financially independent, never exit as in the workforce was kind of like a, a bit of a joke acronym I made, uh, not against the fire community, but just as um, kind of like my contribution to it, I suppose. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with, with early retirement for those that want to chase it. But just if you can get to a level where your wealth is, is at a point where it can perpetuate itself and, and give you a lifestyle that you want. If you were to forgo that and, and carry on working and carry on contributing, then there, you, can, you can reach much, much, much higher levels. Um, so for me, I was able to reach financial independence in eight years, which, I mean, I, I could have you know, taken the rest of my life off, basically, which I, I, I did try that, and I, I absolutely hated it, to be honest with you. So it was more of um, a personal preference, I suppose. But um, I found that I, and I... I would hope that most people tend to be happiest when they're providing for others or creating something. So I think for most people, it's best if they don't retire. It sounds like a great goal to achieve, but if you can treat financial independence as an opportunity to chase other opportunities, I think that's a better use of your life rather than just hanging your hat up and, um, and calling it quits. And even if you reach that age where, where most people tend to retire, which I think in most countries it's, it's 63 or 65, 
there's nothing stopping you from from carrying on in even other aspects of work. So if you can, let's say, just to make the math easy, if you worked from age 25 to 65, that's a 40-year working life. But if you were to work until, and I know it sounds like a stretch, but if you were to work until 85, well, that's another 50% of your working life that you're adding on and that you can keep contributing to not only your family, but the world as well. So if you're able to step into maybe more of a consulting or a managerial role for the family wealth that you've created, then you'll probably be in the best position of your life, barring any major accidents, to actually steer that wealth in the right direction and prepare your family for the long, long term and, and for what the responsibilities are um, of having such a vast amount of wealth. Yeah, so um, that reminds me also of my grandfather who worked like 70 years and last week he closed his grocery store he ran for 70 years <laughs> wow um, wow that's a, so, um, that's a good effort yeah really and he has also been in tv in tv because he is um, yeah like managed to do it that long yeah so you basically managed uh, said that retiring early is not a goal for you and might also not be for other people because with all the knowledge and also because of the backing of the, the family and, and and the capital You can also risk to do what you want. It might, it sounds weird to risk to do what you want, but it might be that you have an idea and maybe you need one or two years to uh, build up a new business that uh, means a lot to you or create a citizen project. You can afford to, to do it also when it's maybe not paying that much in the beginning, for example. And yeah, you could just. Uh, use your skills and and the backing to contribute to the society and it tends also to from my perspective to make many people happy to to do a mini meaningful work that doesn't feel like work so also for me it's kind of good idea not to <laughs> to retire early so instead just do what you want uh, maybe just don't work 40 hours work maybe 24 hours 25 hours And yeah, find a way for yourself to become old and do something you really like. Yeah, yeah, that's a great approach. That's interesting that you talk about it like that, because uh, I, I have the same attitude, but I think it really depends on what stage you're in or you're at. Uh, because if, I don't know about you, Matthias, but if you're in, in, in Matthias's case, he has a family to sustain and he has, it's not as easy as just quitting his job and pursuing fight, like. Maybe, I don't know what, what, what you think, Matthias, but maybe you'll need a few more years of work before you can fine, you know, <laughs> or, or, I mean, for Matthias, if he never exits, I mean, I don't know, would you be happy with that? I mean, I feel that it depends on what stage you are in your life, because if you're still in your accumulation phase, if you're still, uh, and you have responsibilities and you have people to take care of, you know, you have to do a lifestyle change and it's maybe not always as uh, as simple in my case i'm i'm right at the beginning so i have a very similar mentality to yours which is right from the beginning i want to find something i like doing so i don't have to exit ever my actually my goal is not to reach financial dependence i mean yeah when i have children but right now i'm i'm more like okay i, I just want to look for something that that i want to do and then i don't have to have this this rush to to quit but i think it, it depends what, what do you think matthias would you agree Yeah, there are different approaches. For example, if you could work like five years and become FI, um, then you could, for example, pursue other interests you have. For example, if you have a podcast on the side, 
you can put a little bit more effort in it um, after you you went FI, and maybe you can run it. Um, additional podcasts or you can create other projects so for me i would stay a little bit in the, more in the workforce and you also learn a lot of skills and i i also like my job most of the time <laughs> i mean if you have a project on on the side or if you have been have retired or you are be, be um, after your fi then you still have if you have a job or a project not everything is is working out well as in every job so you should not expect that that you're happy a hundred percent of the time. So there is always uh, things you have to work out. So basically, I think it can make sense to to stay stay with your job. So for me, it makes sense. Don't know. What do you think, man? Maybe maybe I should clarify a little bit. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to stay in a job or even work on a business. For example, you can use this this never exit approach to perhaps later in your life work on and developing the family culture or the intellectual and social capital for your family as well. So it has varying degrees, I suppose. But if you are planning on staying in your job, that is great too. And um, I mean, I, I have a business now, but um, as opposed to a job. But I, I did manage to become financially independent with a job, but it wasn't exactly easy to get to this level either. For me, when I tried early retirement, um, I didn't last very long, to be honest, because it drove me up the wall. So for me, it's more it was more working towards something I'm going to get more fulfillment out of. And, and it took me uh, quite a long time to find my, I guess, purpose, for lack of a better term. But ultimately, where I'm at now, I'm, I'm relatively happy, though, just to be clear, I still work a lot. Um, it's, I'm not, I'm not exactly uh, taking it easy. And that is more in my pursuit of, of building the financial wealth that I want for my family in the long term. But yeah, that totally makes sense. Cause, uh... Let me maybe add something. I also um, I'm really inspired by this approach to, to generate inter, intergeneral wealth. Because if I see my grandfather, he started with just a shop in a small village. Then my father had is like an engineer. Um, he also teach me a lot of things about engineering and um, stuff that I can also use now in my career. And I, I also think about uh, now inheriting these skills to my son and my daughter. And for me, it's a very inspirational approach also to think about beyond my life. And if there's no war or something like that, <laughs> uh, they really can be uh, rich uh, or it can be a huge family in the future. Can you just tell us some strategies and tactics that you are doing personally to implement intergenerational wealth uh, with your own family? Some examples. Uh, well, at the moment, I work a lot. At the moment, it's uh, 12.30 a.m. and um, or nearly 12.30 a.m. And um, I'm actually going to one of my customers after this, um, which is a 24-hour plant to do a job there. I tend to work probably too much, um, according to my wife. But um, I also study and, and sort of think a lot about how I can pass what I know down to my children. And, and I really want to be a part of their education as well. So it's more about me acquiring the knowledge that I want to be able to pass down to my children that, and that I wish that I had um, growing up as well. And um, we also work really hard to implement um, the traditions that we really want to keep within our family. Like uh, we have a Sunday breakfast. So every Sunday we um, have a cooked breakfast and my daughter sits at the table with us. I mean, she's only, she's only a baby. She's only seven months old, but you know, she still sits at the, at, at the dinner breakfast table with us. And, um, and we all sit down and share what we're going to do for the day. And, and we typically go out on a Sunday morning as well for a walk out of the house. 
typically to a new place every every time as well, which I find is good for children. We also don't use phones at the dinner table, and um, the, all the investments that I make are based around a very very long term view. So I what what most people do is they think of short, medium, long term investments as sort of five, ten, twenty years. But when you're thinking of um, uh, short, medium, and long term in a family sense, you've got to think more in generations. So a generation is typically 25 years. So short, medium, and long term is typically one, two, and three generations. So 25, 50, and 75 years. And this also gives compound interest a lot more time to work its magic. So um, so th- those are some of the things that I'm doing to to build intergenerational wealth in my family. Yeah, that's very cool. Really, compound interest is working in your favor, and uh, <laughs> your your children will 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 grow up to already have this amazing uh, fund that they can use uh, hopefully wisely. So, um, kudos to that. I hope Matthias is taking notes for his children. <laughs> yeah, we also having breakfast on oh, Sunday, good. like everybody. Um, That's good. Yeah, without phones That's good. and so on. That's good. Cool. Standard questions. Yes, of course. So. Where to find you online, Ben? Um, is there any website, any um, Snapchat channel where people can chase you and find out more about intergenerational wealth? Um, yeah, so I have a website, bluedollarbull.com, and I write all about intergenerational wealth and wealth transfer and all that kind of stuff. But at the moment, I'm more focused on a YouTube channel, which I started the, just this year, and I'm putting a lot more energy into that at the moment. So there's going to be more fresh content on, on YouTube. So if you want to check out my YouTube channel, you can go to bluedollarbull.com slash YT and um, it'll take you straight to my channel page. Yeah, of course, we also link it in our show notes. I also watched a couple of videos on your channel, so really cool. Oh, thank you. Question number two, what is one resource not well known that you would recommend to others? It could be a blog, a podcast, a book, whatever you want. Uh, sticking on the subject, I would say check out Family Fortunes by Bill and Will Bonner. It's a book about building a family fortune and holding on to it for a hundred years. And I learned a lot from this book. And while I don't agree with everything that's in it, I think it's a really good starter resource to get you in the right mindset and, and start you down the path to building generation uh, intergenerational wealth, other than my blog, of course. Of course. <laughs> okay. And is there, is there one actionable tip for someone to get started on the path to FI that you have? To make a fortune, you specialize, but to preserve a fortune, you diversify. But where you specialize is up to you. Everybody who became wealthy typically is specialized. They didn't um, diversify and become wealthy. So the specialization might come in your career or in your business or maybe in your investments, but you've got to specialize somewhere. And once you have specialized and you're building wealth through the specialization, then you diversify to hold on to what you've made and keep it inside your family. Oh, that's very interesting. I wouldn't. I don't know if I would completely agree with that, but uh, since uh, this is our last question, we don't have much time. But yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Specialize first, make the money, and then diversify to manage your wealth. Okay, very good tip. Well, I think that's um, the roundup for today. Thank you very much, Ben, for coming at 12.30 a.m. I did not realize. Oh, <laughs> I'm very sorry. I think we could <laughs> right. have organized it better. <laughs> no problem. Uh, but that's quite intense. Wow, there you go. Five, five. So thank you very much. And that will be a wrap. See you next time. See you next time. Bye-bye. See you later. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. We hope you learned something new and enjoyed the show. You can support us by doing this. Subscribing through your favorite podcast program and leaving us a review. 
following us on Instagram and Twitter at Financial Independence Europe. Sending us an email with questions and feedback. We would love to hear from you. All the mentioned articles, books and cool resources can be found in the show notes at financial-independence.eu. Thank you for listening and see you next time.